Hi, this is Michael J. Sullivan, and you're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. It's the Grim Tidings Podcast. This is Rob Matheny. And hi, I'm Philip Overby. And it's a new year. We've got new microphones, Philip. Uh, we've got new intro music. It's the first interview of the year, and if it's any indicator of what uh, 2016 has in store for the Grim Tidings podcast, um, I think our listeners will be in luck. But first of all, uh, January 7th was just a, a day or two ago, and that is a very special day because it's Philip Overby's birthday. Happy birthday, Philip. Thank you. And that was kind of weird. That was kind of a weird birthday for me. <laughs> Everyone posting memes of me on Facebook, and I was like, what the hell is going on with this? But, yeah, it was cool. I'm very, very happy everybody uh, either was making fun of me or honoring me either way. It was, was good. How old are you now? 35. 35, all right. Yes. Well, you're looking for 35, yeah. but uh, happy birthday, um, you grumpy old bastard. We love you. Thank you. You rock. Well, uh, when we started the podcast, we knew we wanted to interview authors, and there was a, a list of authors who immediately came to our mind of, of people that we wanted to interview, and our guest today is definitely one of those people who, who landed on that list. So let me read the introduction, though I don't really think our, our guest needs an introduction. I'm going to read one anyway and uh, lay out some of the facts that we have before us when it comes to our guest today. So um, our guest today is the author of 27 books, nine of which are published, and his fiction is often described as unlikely heroes meets classic adventure. His works include the epic fantasy series The Ryaria Revelations and The Ryaria Chronicles, as well as the time travel sci-fi novel Hollow World. As one of the few authors to find success in self-publishing, small press, and big five publishing, in 2012 he was named one of io9's most successful self-published sci-fi and fantasy authors, and to date he's sold more than 750,000 English copies. His work has been translated into 12 languages. He spent more than a year on Amazon's best-selling fantasy authors list, and his latest Kickstarter campaign for the death of Dulgoth is rated as the third highest funded fiction project of all time, raising a total of $73,163 of a $26,000 goal. That's not all. He also won a Reddit Stabby Award, had four books nominated for Goodreads Choice Awards, and appeared in more than 100 best of and most anticipated lists. The audiobook for The Death of Dolgath dropped December 18th and has since then become a number one best-selling fantasy audiobook. Easily one of the most influential authors working today, a master storyteller and consummate professional, the Grim Tidings podcast proudly welcomes our very first guest of 2016, Mr. Michael J. Sullivan. Michael, thanks for coming on the show, sir. Ah, thank you for having me, and thank you for that really wild introduction. Who is this guy? <laughs> uh, apparently, this information comes slow to where I live because I didn't know I was that influential, so thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Can I have you talk to me every morning? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> but no, it's great to have you on the show, Michael. Definitely when we uh, planned on having this show, your name came to came to us. And definitely when it comes to the circles of the folks that we hang out with, uh, Grim Dark Fiction readers and writers and Twitter and blogging and all that, uh, Michael J. Sullivan is a name that comes up very frequently when it comes to your blog posts and the contributions that you make uh, to the community with the help that you do for authors, with the um, information that you pass on with you uh, along with uh, your wife as well. Um, together, I think you guys are a force to be reckoned with when it comes to the industry, and we are honored to just get an hour with you today to just pick your brain and, and hang out. So it's it's really cool. Apparently, I'm just too busy to really notice a lot of what happens. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that's good. Well, you're busy writing awesome fantasy books, so that's that's a good thing. So The Death of Dolgoth is the um, newest book to drop. Book three of the uh, series of the Right Era Chronicles. It was released in December, and you just won a stabby, or your artist won a stabby for the best cover art. Yeah, and this is actually the first time I'm hearing this. <laughs> Again, oh, been oh, very wow. busy lately. I have not been... Uh... Probably haven't been as as active on social media as I normally am, just because we're trying to put out the fulfillment for the uh, the Kickstarter that we ran recently, and uh, also editing another book. So yeah, we've been really busy. So I I haven't even found, this is the first I've heard of it. So thank you. I'm I'm glad to hear that I actually did win. Yeah, artist uh, Mark Simonetti uh, was the cover artist for the Death of Dolgoth, and that won the uh, Stabby for uh, best cover art for 2015. So yeah, congratulations, and glad we can break that news to you. Uh, it's uh, congratulations to Mark, actually, because obviously he did all the work. I just take all the credit. That's all. <laughs> Has Mark done uh, cover art for you for other projects? Yeah, past? I was first introduced to him when he did the French covers of the, the very first book I did with Orbit. Uh, he did the first couple for that, and I just loved it. I thought it was the best cover I had seen. So when we did uh, Future Works, we have always gone back to him to try and get him to you know, do work. Uh, he actually did the cover art for Hollow World, which was the independent book I did. Uh, so, yeah, we really, we really enjoyed that. Oh, and also right now, uh, you may have noticed there's a new cover out there, which is for Age of Myth, which is the new series coming up, and I actually... Uh, asked Del Rey if they would use Mark, and they were kind enough to look into it. And yes, he is now doing the covers for that series as well. It's gone over very well. Most people seem to really like the cover, which is, you know, I'm very pleased about. So the series itself, the Right Era Chronicles, the Right Era uh, Revelations, has been has been noted as one of the the best fantasy series I think to to come out uh, within the the last decade um, for sure. Could, for for folks who aren't familiar with the series, could you maybe give us a little sneak peek as to what uh, what's going on in the Death of Dolgoth and what readers can expect from this newest title? Well, first of all, I I pronounce the Death of Dolgath, but Golgoth is Dulgan. fine too. I, gotcha. I guess it's for people who are like goth. <laughs> um, Death of Dulgath, what? So that's the third uh, in the series of the Rhaera Chronicles. For those of you who don't know, I wrote, uh, let's see, six books which were added together and created the Rhaera Revelations, which uh, follows the exploits of two uh, entrepreneurial thieves. Um, and they end, uh, the series ends. Um, with Raya Revelations, but a lot of people wanted more of that duo, so Royce and Hadrian. So I actually went back in time because at the point that the Revelations begins, they've been together for 12 years. So I went, well, people have asked, how could these unlikely pairing have ever gotten together to begin with? So what I did was I went back to the very beginning and I uh, wrote out how they met and that became the Raya Chronicles. And because people wanted more books by them, I thought, well, you know, I had 12 years, I can fill in some of the backstory. And that would that would appeal to people. Now, as it turns out, most people don't like uh, prequels because I guess they feel that they're just kind of tacked on and they, they weren't developed. I didn't do it that way. I approached it as I really wanted to know in detail how they got together. So I made full stories, and, and that's gone over very well. Now, uh, I never really promised that I was going to do 12 books. Uh, there's room for 12 books if I do a book for every year they're together. Um, but they're really just being put out as a way to kind of appease readers. As long as they want books, you know, I'll, I'll try and get more books out. But the, I, yeah, I have other projects I'm working on, but every once in a while, it's, it's, a, it's a vehicle by which I can continue to put out books without having that pressure of, listen, 
you have to figure out how it's going to end because it's not being done the same way Revelations was as one big story. These are being done as standalones. Now, they interconnect in the same way that a television series might, but you don't really have to have read the first ones to appreciate the latter ones, and nor nor do you going to feel that if I don't finish out the series, you're going to be left on edge. So uh, that was kind of a a series which was designed so that people can enjoy them, but uh, you don't have to feel that if I, you know, don't continue going any further that you're going to be left without an answer to certain questions because right here, Revelations ends the story. So, I mean, it, it should be good that way. Yeah, George R. R. Martin has recently come under some pressure, I guess, so to speak, because the Winds of Winter is not uh, going to be completed before um, the next season of the TV uh, show airs. Um, so he's he's faced a certain amount of pressure when it comes to fans asking for him to complete the stories. Has that been a problem for you ever with uh, pressure from fans to get those stories out? Of, I mean, it must be a good thing to have this constant uh, desire from your fans to, to have more Roy- Royce and Hadrian stories. Is that something that you deal with? Uh, no, because one of the things I, I've always done and is I tend to write a series of books as one story. And I do that so much so that I write the entire series before I ever take it to publication. Like with my new series coming out, it's a five-book series. And I was in a rush to make sure I had all the books drafted out before I ever sold it to Del Rey. Um, so the same thing is true. I, I like to make sure the book is completely done. So you know, it, I just have to edit it now and put it out. And the same was true with Revelations. I wrote that whole series out, so I didn't have to worry about it. <laughs> One of the things that I would, I would say when I was at bookstores and people would be buying the books, I said, you know, I, uh, you know, if I were hit by a bus when I walked out of here, you're still going to find out how the book ends because it's all done. Um, so that was kind of a reassurance to readers that you didn't have to worry about that. Um, the other thing was... Um, I wanted to make sure the continuity between the beginning and the end was there. And if I wanted to change something up near the end, I could make the adjustments to the beginning so that it all works out and it allowed me to have a great deal more flexibility. So as far as I'm concerned, when I'm doing a series, I like to make sure that you know the whole story makes sense from beginning to end before I sell it to someone. Because I, I, I hate selling something and not knowing if it's ever going to work. I mean, if I were writing the first book of a series and then I was in line for five more books, you know, what if the rest of it's crap? I mean, I don't want to put out crap. <laughs> and if I can't solve that problem, which I have done with books, I've written books and I've gotten part way in it. And like, you know, this isn't working out. And I would just scrap it. I've, I've, I've spent whole years on books that I've just thrown away because they just didn't work out. So I like to know in advance that the series is going to be good before I ever sell it. Uh, Chronicles being the exception, which is, you know, that is just standalone books that I, I'm, I'm doing intentionally so that they don't require you to read, you know, beyond that point. Yeah, I think uh, Hadrian and Royce are one of the more popular duos uh, in all of fantasy. Um, there, there's lots of duos that have been throughout uh, the history of fantasy literature. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing any of these correctly, but uh, Fafrid and Gray Mauser uh, in the 1980s, you had uh, Red Sonja and uh, whoever Arnold Schwarzenegger's character was, (laughs) Conan, I guess. It looked like Conan. Um, I actually think both of those were actually originally written a long time ago, back in like the 20s and 30s, and they were recompiled in the 70s and 80s into novels. I think they started off as short stories. I think you're... You're, you're talking about, uh, was it Edgar Rice Burroughs? I think he did Conan. and uh, Yeah, yeah, maybe. I forget who did Farrar and the Grey Mouse. Or, uh, Fritz Lieber. Fritz, Fritz Lieber. Lieber, yes, right. Uh, but those, I think, were originally done as short stories in magazines and were later compiled into novels. Um, but yeah, I, actually, unfortunately, I've never actually read those. I had a fan who gave me a book uh, by Fritz Lieber, which I have on my to-read list, but I haven't actually gotten to it. But yeah, a number of people have 
have uh, said that my my Royce and Hadrian characters are similar in some ways to those books. So I, I I've kind of dragged my feet into reading them because I don't want to be reading something too similar for fear I might end up, you know, clouding my judgment. What do you think makes people connect with duos as as opposed to like a singular main character? Uh, I know Hadrian and, and Royce have very different personalities. I've read uh, some of your stories, and uh, Hadrian seems to be the more I guess the more positive one, if I'm, if I'm just... Uh, he's the Royce. idealistic dreamer, sir. Yeah, he's the the one who always sees the glass as half full. Yeah, Royce and, is the more cynical, kind of uh, doesn't give a shit kind of guy. The, the Philip Overby. <laughs> yeah, the Philip Overby. Me. me. He is me. <laughs> well, with the duo, you get two for the price of one, don't you? And uh, if you're a type of person who's more uh, a Royce type of person, you're going to be satisfied. And if you're a Hagen type of person, you'll also be satisfied. So you get a larger audience just because you're presenting two different sides of the same, you know, of the same argument. And no matter who you are, you're probably going to be able to relate to one or the other. Uh, but to get to the point of what makes the characters more relatable uh, uh, and, and appealing is generally I, I just try to make the characters seem as realistic as possible, usually basing them on people I already know to begin with. And then kind of uh, coloring them in a direction I want them to go. But also, I've generally found that if you if you add something interesting about a specific character and you make them likable, uh, that tends to be something that draws people because people are generally gravitate toward people who they like or who they find interesting in some way. Uh, rather than people who you don't like or you find boring, you have a tendency to stay away from. So it, it's kind of the same thing you would do uh, in real life. Of course, as a writer, the trick is how do you do that? How do you make a character likable? How do you make a character interesting? And those are the tricks that you have to overcome in, in, in learning you know, how to write in order to how to do that. Well, clearly the, the characters resonate with people to the fact that your Kickstarter campaign, what kind of quadruple funded what you what you had planned for the death of dual gath tell us about how that kickstarter campaign kind of blew out the doors for you uh well actually most of that was all done by my wife uh, i was busy with my head down trying to write the book <laughs> in fact i finished writing the novel the day after the kickstarter officially ended Wow. So she actually ran most of it. So I actually have her here. She's going to answer that question because she's the one who did all the fulfillment on it. She knows all the skinny. So go ahead. Hey. Ladies and gentlemen, Robin Sullivan. Hey, hi. So we've done a few Kickstarters now and they've both done very well. Um, Hollow World. Hollow World was an experiment with just trying to figure out whether it really was a challenge to me because I'd ran into a few traditionally published authors at cons who were saying that they had some properties that they couldn't get sold and they didn't feel like they could self-publish them. I said, well, why don't you kickstart them, and then you'll have the money to self-publish them. And they said, ah, kickstarters don't work. So really, I, mm-hmm. I, that was it was an experiment with me to try and figure out whether it would work. For Death of Dual Gath, one thing that I've always really wanted was hardcover books. Orbit only put out the Ryera stuff in trade paperback. And Del Rey's contract is for hardcovers, and that was nice. So the whole re- way that Death of Dual Gath came into being was we had to get this book out really, really quickly to satisfy a non-compete issue. Del Rey had Age of Myth coming out in June, and they didn't want to see any Raira book anywhere near that release to kind of mm-hmm. interfere with it. But it had been several years since a Raira book had come out, so I was like, well, if we can get something done by the end of 2015, will that be okay? And they said yes. So we had a very short period of time to, to put together this book. And because we were transitioning from paperback to hardcover, I said, you know, let's run a Kickstarter 
with, whose purpose is to get hardcover editions. Then I started doing my math for like how much that would cost because usually in self-publishing you do, you know, you do ebooks and you do print-on-demand trade paperbacks. And so the upfront investment isn't that great. I mean, you got to pay for your cover artist, you got to pay for your editor, but the costs are pretty reasonable such that we could, you know, absorb them ourselves. But when you start talking about a hardcover print run, now you're talking some some serious money. So I did my calculations. I think it came out to be about $36,000, which was more than I could just say, hey, let's just cut a check for $36,000. What I decided to do was say, okay, well, the book's going to come out regardless. The only question is whether it will be in hardcover. So I did the Kickstarter to raise $26,000, which wasn't the whole amount, but it was enough that the remaining amount above that we could handle on our own. And I figured, well, if the Kickstarter works, then we'll have hardcovers. And if the Kickstarter doesn't work, we'll still have the ebooks and trade paperbacks and all's good with the world. I totally did not expect it to blow up like it did. <laughs> uh, I thought it would take us the whole period of the Kickstarter to run. And to be quite honest, uh, and this happened with Hollow World as well. I'm actually going to write a book on Kickstarter, by the way, um, that and, awesome. and make it available for people for free. But to be honest, I stopped promoting both of those Kickstarters like pretty early on because like once they <laughs> hit their goals, I realized that it was going to kind of snowball out of control, and they did. Like right now, I'm downstairs when I'm not in this room right now, shipping out like. 2,000 pounds of books, and I'm not kidding. I, I have 2,000 pounds of books that I have to ship as part of the Kickstarter. So, is that literally a ton of books? It is. It is, it is <laughs> literally. It's actually more than a ton. I'm actually going to add up how much weight I've moved when this is over. But but just just the dual gas stuff is over 2,000 pounds, and then a lot of people ordered other books too. So as far as like why it, it blew up, I think there's a couple things. I think when you start a Kickstarter, a lot of it has to do with people being excited about stretch goals. And I think that every time I put out a new stretch goal, it kind of really encouraged people to like tell their friends because they were really wanted to get whatever was being stretched. And usually the stretch goals, quite honestly, were things that I wanted. You know, like I wanted a poster of Mark's incredible artwork that won the Stabby. So, you know, make that a stretch goal. You know, I wanted a graphic novel of Royce and Hadrian. So I made that a stretch goal. So really, the Kickstarter is really kind of self-perpetuating. You kind of come up with a product that's a good product, and you have rewards that are good rewards, and it's really like everyone else who does all the work as far as spreading the word. Um, I didn't do that much from that standpoint. Now, one thing that was unique about this particular Kickstarter was the inclusion of uh, you opened up the submission gate, so to speak, for an inclusion of uh, another story that will be added uh, I'm assuming to the end of the the novel. That's correct. Can you tell us a little about about the story that was chosen? Um, I'm sure you had shitloads of <laughs> submissions. <laughs> yeah, I had. Uh, we we had we had we had a few. It's so much so that I actually had to treat it as if it was as if I was working in a slush pile. Um, what I ended up doing was uh, I would read the first you know few words. It, it turns out that. Um, you can tell whether someone knows how to write, at least I can tell someone knows how to write in the same way that you can tell if someone knows how to play a piano just by listening to the first few notes. I mean, you can pretty much tell if they have a, an understanding of what they're doing, if they are you know, have any knowledge or any talent. Um, so I would read the first paragraph or so, and I could quickly determine and put the ones that were I thought were good in one pile and ones I, I discarded in another. Most of them I was able to discard this way. Then once I went back to the larger group, I don't know, I had like 25, I think. And then I would read all those in entirety and I'd separate out to like the final five or four or so 
Uh, and then I reread those again and I discussed and I had my wife read those and we discussed it at length uh, of what I thought was best. And, and the reason why I, jo- I chose uh, Tyler Powell, uh, his story, Methuselah Syndrome. Or, uh, well, it is, it? It, we changed. I think it's called the Methuselah Project yeah, now. Yeah, like I said, that's why it threw me. Uh, so his story was when I read it, the, the last three, one kind of moved me emotionally. Another one moved me in a sense that it was kind of quirky and funny. Uh, but Tyler's actually had the best overall writing and story. It moves very quickly. Uh, the writing is very clean. It's very immediately pulls you in and it's very clear. I, that's one of the things I really like about a good story is that the moment it starts, you know what's going on, you know who it's happening to, you know what's at stake and you're pulled right into it. He did very well at that. And and his pacing throughout was was quite excellent, and it had it came to an interesting conclusion. So that's really what made me grab his as opposed to some of the other ones that uh, there was two other ones that came in really close, uh, but I ended up going with his because overall I think he had the the best conclusion and the best writing style. One of the things that's really great about you know doing Death of Dulgath as an independent project is we can do something like that. I mean we we really like helping you know, aspiring authors and authors who maybe don't have a big platform to, to get a little recognition. If I went to Orbit or Del Rey and said, hey, I would like to include, you know, some unknown author short story with your book, eh, they're not going to be real pleased about doing that. But, uh, you know, this is the type of things that we can do when we self-publish, which is one of the reasons why we do the hybrid thing is, you know, like we also give away free eBooks for people who have the audio version of anything that we own the e-rights to. So like Hollow World and Death of Dulgath, we can do that too. So, um, you know, it was just a really nice way of kind of, you know, yeah, cause it's offering hard, a hand. It's hard to get started in this business. So, I mean, anytime we can find someone who has some talent, it's great to be able to give them a leg up. And I think that's where your kind of influence kind of resonates within the the industry and within our kind of community of writers is uh, your your willingness to to be so supportive of the industry. I mean, your website is vast. You've got uh, lots of resources and things that people can go check out. And you've been on multiple podcasts and you write for Writer's Digest and you just have this plethora of resources that you've made available to other folks. And then with having the uh, story inclusion in the Death of Dolgath, it's just uh, really cool to see your involvement with helping the, this uh, community of writers. So it's, uh, it's uh, much appreciated. Oh, thank you. All that stuff on my website was kind of accidental because when I started, my wife says, you have to have a website. And I'm like, well, what do I put on this? She goes, just write a blog of some sort. And I don't know what to write. No one cares about me. So I started writing things that just at random. And then eventually I thought, hey, you know, I know about writing. I can just write tips. Not that anyone's ever going to read these things. And it turned out that a lot of people have. <laughs> so that was just my way of coming up with something to write each day. Since you are one of the most, I think, famous hybrid authors uh, that are out there, what would you suggest for anyone who is starting out as a writer and wants to plan uh, their path to publishing at this point? Well, the same thing I tell everyone is that it's going to kind of depend on what they have available to them as well as what their eventual goals are going to be. If they you know, want to be in bookstores, that's going to be very hard if you self-publish. Um, on the other hand, you know, if you want to be in control of every aspect and get exactly out what you want out – uh, then you probably want to go tradition or self-publishing. Now, in many cases, you don't have a choice. I really didn't have a choice. I started out. I went around to the different traditional publishers. You know, I didn't get those. I went around to some of the smaller publishers, and and they were not responsive. So I started to aim toward going to self-publishing just because uh, I felt pretty confident that my work was good enough to be published. And that's a, a real tricky thing, too, to being able to determine whether your stuff is, is good enough and people are turning you down for reasons other than the quality of your writing. But I, I was planning on going self-publishing when, I, when it turned out that a small publishing house did pick me up. But then they ran into problems as a result of that. Their financial uh, 
issues forced me to go self-publishing. But if you have the option to go traditional or self, that's going to be up to you as to what you're looking for and what you're looking for in your career. Personally, I feel traditional publishing is really great for recognition. It helps you uh, establish you as a, a serious writer and, and eliminates a lot of the hassles that come from the stigma of being self-published. But on the other hand, it does take away a lot of your ability to control your career and get what you want. And uh, in many cases, it also makes it uh, a little bit harder, you know, for income. If you're not overly successful, then, you know, self-publishing will will solve that problem for you. It really depends on what you're doing. But if you do have the option, if you can do both, I would say do both because then you get a little uh, a little bit of both of those worlds and, and they're, they're going to benefit you. And diversifying your ability to make money and ability to reach people is always a good thing. The other thing I'd like to say, because I, I deal with the contract side of things, is it's really important for authors to, if hybrid authorship is what they plan on doing or what they would like to do, then they need to account for that when they're doing their contracts because uh, the way the contracts are written Sometimes it could impede that. When we got the very first traditionally publishing contract from Orbit, there was a non-compete in there that would make it very difficult uh, for him to do anything hybridish. And it took us like six months to negotiate it down to a, a standpoint where we could. You know, if, if that is something that you're looking at, there's there's two particular areas of the contract that I suggest people look at. One is the non-compete. Um, Which is clause what? Well, (laughs) it's usually usually towards the end. It's usually like paragraph 16 seems to be a place where it shows up a lot. And so that's that's one thing to look very carefully and and always look at it with an eye towards kind of like worst case scenario. Because a lot of agents who want, you know, who want the deal done, they're going to say, oh, well, you know, they're never going to enforce this. They never they never do. It's like, well, if you're signing your name to something, maybe they haven't done it in the past, but they could. So you have to realize whether you could live with with it. The other thing is, and this is something I've seen recently, is there seems to be a clause that is snuck into contracts and it sneaks into a very odd place. There's a section of the contract called the indemnification clause. And usually what an indemnification clause is, is I, the author, certify that this is my own work and I haven't stolen anyone else's work. And if you find out that I didn't do what I say, you can, you know, smack me around and take away the contract. (laughs) But what's been added into that indemnification clause, and this came up with the Del Rey thing, which is why Dualgath was done the way it was, is a lot of times they'll say, I, the author, certify that this will be the next work published by myself, you know, published um, either as myself or through any pen name. And that's a big problem because a lot of times when you sign these contracts, you know, your book isn't going to be released for at a minimum 12 months, but usually more like 18 months or even two years is usually the outside, you know, scope they have. So if you want a hybrid and you sign a contract with that thing in there, you can't put anything out for however long it takes them to release that, their book. And if they drag their feet, it could be as many much as two years. So that's a real problem. And in fact, that clause was in the Del Rey clause, which is why we couldn't put dual gaff out. And that was one of the things I had to negotiate out. And I said, look, you know, the last Rice and Hadrian book came out in 2013. I need to get a book of theirs out in 2015. Of course, she didn't tell me this to the last minute. Yes. Yeah. It, it was April when she came to me and said, how quickly can you write a book? Because <laughs> we have to get this out this year. And I'm like, well, if for you to actually edit it and promote it, that means we have to have it done by like August 1st at the latest. That means... I've got like 60 days <laughs> and I don't have an idea. Mike's writing wasn't the problem. It was all the stuff that happens afterwards. Uh, I think it took him, what, 68, 68 days. 68 days to write Dual Gath. But then I had to run a beta test on it. 
Um, and you got to give the beta test readers, you know, usually I like to give them six weeks. I only gave them four weeks for that because I was under deadline pressure. And then I had to do my structural edits, which is basically just giving Mike a list of things that has to get changed. He's got to incorporate those. Those went pretty smoothly. Then there was incorporating the beta feedback. Again, that went pretty smoothly. But then, I, you know, there's there's the line editing, which can take a very long period of time. And then it's got to go to the copy editors. I had three different copy editors, you know, that it went through. <laughs> because whenever I self-publish a book, I'm very, very, very paranoid that I want it to be the highest quality possible. So... When we traditionally publish, you know, we only get one copy editor, but when we self-publish, we typically do at least two and usually three, Wow. Um, which I'm not suggesting self-published authors do that because it's very <laughs> expensive, but in our cases, we have Kickstarters backing us and they overfund, so we have the funds to do that. So yeah, the, the it was the after writing stuff that took a long time, and actually it didn't change much. I mean, if you look at the original book and what finally got released, they're pretty close. Yeah, I, I actually lucked out on that. I did a pretty good job the first time through. Yeah. So, yeah, 68 days to write the book, and you guys were on a constant kind of time crunch the whole time trying to get this thing out. Yeah, and she was doing the Kickstarter at the same time we were writing, so we ended pretty much at the same time. Yeah. And then after that, it was just a matter of editing and then dealing with uh, fulfillment. So, yeah, this has been a very busy year. I think I ended up – I added it up. I wrote what – you were supposed to do me a blog post. Yeah, I did, I did actually. <laughs> oh. I just haven't given it to you. Okay. Uh, but I, I think I wrote like, was it like three books and edited like five or some darn thing this year? It was an excruciating busy year. And not to mention the, the contract negotiations. Yeah. That, that, was, that yeah. was long. And it, se- I, it seems like I've not been able to do any resting. We're, we're going to take a nice vacation in 2016. <laughs> You mentioned actually Age of Myth. I, I assume that's the, your newest project that will be coming out in 2016 at some point. Yeah, that's uh, the first book of the first Empire series, which uh, I believe the first book is supposed to debut sometime in June 2016. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, uh, no, I'm you a- can't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. I don't want to ad- advertise any of my books anymore. Oh, okay. I can tell you something about. That. <laughs> okay, please tell us. <laughs> Essentially. Uh, in the series of Raya Revelations, there was a great deal of information given about about uh, the history of the world, the First Empire, and Navran, and how all that uh, came about. Uh, all of it's pretty much lies, and I knew that when I wrote it. Uh, I had a friend of mine who initially, when he very first read the book, he says, well, that's kind of a trite background. And I said, you know, you're right. So I wrote what would be the real background of exactly how everything came to pass, which is a little bit more realistic. Uh, but I decided that Myths have a tendency to do that, and legends have a tendency to be uh, made to seem much rosier and more pleasant and more heroic than they actually are. So I felt this need to actually relate the true story of how everything came to pass. So uh, the First Empire, essentially, as you can probably tell by the name, discusses how the First Empire was built. And uh, it starts off at a time when the elves were considered to be gods and humans you know, we're near, you know, just out of the uh, hunter-gathering stage and, and into the farming stage. So there was a lot of very early history being put forth in that. And I wanted to basically show how it all came about. And a lot of disparity between those two cultures. I mean, you had one that was very advanced, one that was very primitive. And, and the other thing is it's kind of a recognition of history is written by those who win, right? 
So the stories that are told through Rayir revelations about the history, I mean, those are written by the people who won. So they get to color things the way they want it colored and not necessarily tell the truth as to what actually happened. And the other thing is, is that as with the Raya Revelations, I don't know if you noticed, if you happen to have read it, was that the first book uh, isn't actually the strongest of the series. <laughs> I, I didn't intend to actually publish them. I was just going to put them out on the internet for everyone to read. Uh, so I didn't really put a lot of effort into, like, how would I get people into the series? So I actually wrote the weakest of the series by saving all the best stuff for later, because I like series that actually get better as they go along. This was a really stupid idea of mine. <laughs> <laughs> because obviously if your first book is not very strong, no one's going to read the second book. I didn't think of that. didn't really cross my mind. And for some totally weird reason, I kind of did that again with my next series is that the first book is – like Crown Conspiracy was, it's an introduction. It's to get you to get to know the, the time period, the place, the setting, and some of the characters. But it, it also is more of an introduction. And the real story doesn't get rolling until you get to the end of the first book and into the second. Then you start seeing how things are going to pick up. So unfortunately, I, I screwed myself over again. But hopefully it's, it's a better book, I think, than Crown Conspiracy. <laughs> As a fan of both, I'm going to say it's not quite that dire. I, I will say, though, that the books start off deceptively simple, and there's a lot more complexity going on than what you know. It's just it takes a while for some of that complexity to get exposed. Which is kind of what happened with the first series, too. I mean, a lot yeah. of people have said the no, same thing. I, I'm not saying that because I say that. I'm saying that because the readers have told me such. The first Empire, the, the entire series is written at this point. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I wrote the draft of all the books. Now what I'm doing is I'm editing through, which is basically polishing them down. So the first book is obviously with Delray. Uh, the second and third book I did in November and December, I usually take about a month to polish the book down because they're they're pretty close to being done. Uh, now, the last two books, they require a little bit extra rewriting because it, it's almost like rolling out dough with the roller. As you push it along, you have to deal with everything, get it in line. So the last two books are going to require a little bit more work. So I'm advocating, you know, or, or allotting two months you know, for each of those. So I'm, I'm hoping to have the entire series polished and ready to go off for, you know, just minor, minor editing by the spring. Uh, we'll see how well that goes, but that is my intention. I've done the initial pass through all five books, and Mike's been incorporating those changes. You know, when he does this rewrite, the uh, first book, that's that's done, done. I mean, we just turned in the, um, the changes to the copy edits at the first part of this year. So that's actually in production. So they're actually laying it out. And I think ARC's I just heard from his editor are going to be ready by the end of uh, February. And I'll be doing the beta for book two probably. Yeah, she has yet to read book two and three as they now stand. Yeah, I mean, one of the things about the Kickstarter stuff is I don't feel like I can do anything except for Kickstarter fulfillment. Um, So I've got two books that I'm dying to read, you know, like their final incarnation of. But I can't because I got books to ship. So I just. <laughs> you can't have fun till your work is done. Yeah, I only got a slight break. I took a couple days off uh, to go over the copy edits of Age of Myth because that was under a deadline pressure. And then I went right back to shipping. If I do another Kickstarter in the future, and this is one of the things I'm going to talk about in my Kickstarter book is, and, and Mike would probably forgive me, for, forbid me from ever doing it again, is that I have to structure the Kickstarter a little bit differently so I can use a fulfillment house. Yeah, when you end up having that many people responding, it can be a problem. Yeah. Heaven forbid we ever did like, you know, had hundreds hundreds of thousands of people. Oh, God. (laughs) 
good. You know, these guys are going to start making people think I'm really a, you know, a big writer, and then I'm going to get a lot more people buying my <laughs> stuff, and I'm going to be in really big trouble. You're not. You're not. It's a good you're problem. Thank God for that. You don't have to worry about that, sweetie. Good. <laughs> so, Age of Myth is going to be more of a. Is it going to be a similar style to your previous? Uh, <laughs> prior kind of yeah. Uh, okay. So when originally when I wrote it, because I was writing basically of a time period that was about three thousand years in the past, um, <laughs> I, I actually tried writing it in more of an archaic style. Uh, if, if if you're familiar with my work at all, you'll realize that I use very contemporary language for the dialogue and even the prose. Um, and, I, and I do that for a plethora of reasons, which I'll probably put in a blog post at some point. But in, in this instance, I decided to actually try and write it so that you would get a sense of a difference between the two different uh, time periods. So I was actually going to write it in sort of an archaic style. So I, I wrote that out in the first par- uh, chapter, and I gave it to my wife to read because she was, she was pestering me. So I gave it to her, and she read it, and she's like, well, you tell them. <laughs> I was less than pleased. <laughs> Generally, I do not get to see a book until it's done. And I think Mike was questioning whether this was the right approach because he let me see it beforehand. And I looked at it. I'm like, you know, what is this? And I don't want to use an expletive, but it deserves <laughs> an expletive. And, and i like, this This is not you. Who, who wrote this? This isn't you. This isn't anything like you. He says, well, no, I'm trying to be like real authors. I'm trying to be like, like you know, like yeah. how everyone else is. And there's so much better than me. And I'm, I'm trying to be that. I like, no, no, no. Get rid of this. Go back, find Michael Sullivan and ask him to write a, help you write a book. He went back and he wrote it. And then we were, we were actually in New York for the recording of Hollow World. And you gave me the revised version. Remember right. that? Yeah. And we were sitting in a little park and I read it, and I'm like, no, still not there, honey. It's no. And so he went back again, and then he wrote it. And well, then that, I, well, then I rewrote the whole book, and yeah. then I got done. Because I, then I understood what she was talking about. Yeah, so. and then I was like, yes, this is what we're talking about. And so, yes, it is now a Michael Sullivan book. Yeah, so it, it's now written much more in the same style as uh, the Rager Revelations. Incorporating more of that uh, contemporary language and whatnot. Yeah, the contemporary language, the kind of same humor. insights, the same humor, the same kind of thing. Yeah, so it, it's very much along the same lines, only with very different characters, uh, which is my only real concern is that, I mean, is it that people only read me because they love Rice and Hadrian? Uh, or will they be willing to embrace new characters that I've created? So hopefully they will, and uh, we'll find out. But like I said, uh, unfortunately, some of the best characters won't even really – uh, be revealed in their entirety until probably the second book. But by that time, you'll probably have an understanding of where the book's going. So I just hope I can keep the readers going for until the second book. Well, has book one gotten to the hands of beta readers yet? Two beta readers, yeah. We, 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 beta, read, we beta tested that twice. The first time th- is interesting because when I run beta reads, I'm an ex-engineer and I'm pretty analytical. So the beta readers have to rate the book on a scale of one to five on a whole bunch of metrics, you know, plot, character, pacing, etc. And, uh, you know, so it's going along fine, you know, chapter one's fine, chapter two's good, three, four, five. We hit chapter 10, and it just nosedived. It just, it just crashed and burned. <laughs> and this is a really good reason why you have beta reads, because you're blinded sometimes by things that after you hear from the beta readers, you go, oh, of course. And part of the problem was there's two major cultures in this in this world, and, and in chapter 10 is where you first get introduced to the second culture. 
And people just couldn't cope with it because it was such a departure from everything else. And they were very confused and there were a lot of words being thrown at them. It was like drinking from a fire hose. So we split the chapter up into two parts and moved to chapter five, half of it. And then we kept the rest back at chapter 10. And then the second beta read, of course, they didn't know any of that. And then we went through and it was just, it was perfect. Uh, you know, there was no fall off and no gnashing of teeth. Yeah, so for overall, I, I guess most of the response has been very positive, but been, I tend yeah. to be very concerned. <laughs> well, <laughs> <'Cause>, yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah. think we learned, learned something from the, the new Star Wars movie. I don't know if you two have seen it yet. Uh, yeah, we have, actually. But a lot of people were going in excited about the older characters, and then they came away more excited about the newer characters. So yeah. that, that could be the same circumstance with your newest work. People this is another problem that I actually had, because with the original books, the same issue happened where people, when they read The Crown Conspiracy, made certain assumptions about where the book was going to go because of how the genre generally treats characters of that type. And I, I kind of enjoyed that because it allowed me to you know, hoodwink them and, and just, you know, lead them in the wrong direction so that I could, you know, surprise them later. And this is also doing that, and the beta read tends to bear this out, this, we would ask them questions like, where do you think the story is going? And all of them thought it was going one way, which it completely is not going that way. So <laughs> in, in, in some respects, that's kind of nice, but it's also kind of bad because I would like them to, you know, not be disappointed. I also don't want them to dismiss the book thinking, oh, it's just going to be that story when in fact it isn't. Yeah, I, I, I want to be really careful not to do any spoils, but there, it's really interesting. And I usually try and write up like a, an afterword afterwards, that <laughs> afterward, afterward, uh, <laughs> Vector, Victor, uh, that tries to explain some things. And one of the things I found most interesting about the beta read was when I asked people what they thought was going to happen, almost inevitably everyone said they thought, you know, A was going to happen. And I was like, R really? That's what you think? And and it turned out that wasn't what happened. It was something else, and, and it was good um, that they felt that way. But it just, it just showed how ingrained people are into certain storylines and tropes that they expect. And it was interesting to see. It's it almost like a psychological experiment to, to it watch. Is. It is. Reactions. It is. The, the the really cool thing about this book, and, and this is a departure from the Raira stuff, is I've described this book as, um, you know, the island of misfit toys. It has much more of an ensemble cast feel as opposed to, like, you know, two very strong main characters. There's, like Mike said, a lot of the characters that are really cool, you you'll, won't even really see much until book two. But, but they're all really, I mean, they are fascinating. I mean, when you... Well, I, I have a problem not even talking about them because well, I love them so much. Well, how, how it came about was that I, I started off with generally One Direction, and then as I added in the side characters, I discovered I liked them way more than the, the main characters. So I ended up actually incorporating them and turning them into the main characters. Yeah. Uh, so that's why there's, there's going to be this kind of a sense of the book kind of diverting itself from where you think it's going to where I ended up taking it. And the reason I took that step was because of the fact that it also dovetailed in very closely into what I wanted to say with the book. And the overall concept is that the people who make history aren't the ones you think they are, that the people who claim uh, you know, the credit aren't the ones who actually do the work. So it's the lesser known people that actually are the ones that the story is going to be about. So the big names, they're not going to be playing as large a part than you would have expected. It's not the patents. It's the guys who are in the trenches who right. are you know, getting it one foot, you know, 
one foot of ground at a time, if you will. Yeah, so I have these characters who in any normal fantasy book would not be at all heroic, would not be the ones you would expect to be, you know, the Frodo carrying the ring, although, of course, Frodo wasn't be the person you would expect <laughs> either. So that's kind of the thing I was going for, was that these are the people who have been forgotten mostly by history because they were not big, they were not impressive, and they didn't have an advertising campaign to promote them, uh, whereas the other people did. So that's kind of where the story is going and. Now, we have totally diverted this entire interview <laughs> to my new book series, so maybe we should rename this something. <laughs> it's fun. It is a great story. It's got really great characters. I, yeah, can you re-air this like in June? I, I'm, exci- I, I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely uh, share it as much as possible in whatever time period you, you would like us to share it. <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask, uh, since you mentioned earlier about the piano analogy you can kind of tell uh if you're going to like a story pretty early based on well not not so much would i like a story but does the writer have talent and skill okay so so as far as if you like a story or not um what kind of situations do you generally like to see in your own stories or in other people's stories that immediately get you hooked and kind of covers that, uh, depending on who the person is, the five-page rule or the five-sentence rule or whatever the case may be, like what gets you hooked into your own story or gets you hooked into someone else's story from the get-go? Yeah, what I look for when I'm when I'm reading a book that I think is going to make it, you know, if you're going through a bookstore and you're opening the book and you're reading the first paragraph, uh, it's the same thing I try and do when I write my own books, is within the first uh, paragraph, certainly by the first page, you want to, first of all, be extremely clear and because I hate reading a book where the author is is either accidentally or intentionally being vague uh, and they'll like they use a lot of pronouns. They'll say he stood in the place and waited for the thing. And you're like, well, tell me some nouns. And, and that's really <laughs> annoying because sometimes they, they're trying to hide everything from you. And that's a real problem. Or they'll start off with an action sequence in which is useless because I don't care about the people involved. So I have this really exciting action scene, but I don't really care. I'm not interested. What I actually tend to try and do is when I'm writing my stuff is I will start just before the inciting incident. So like a good example would be, I think, uh, the second book of the Chronicles where I actually started the scene with a fight and my wife read that she goes, well, I really don't, you know, I'm not really involved in it. I'm like, you know, you're right. I have to start just before the scene so you have a chance to set up and get to know the characters for just a few you know, minutes and then you get involved and you see how you got into the crisis. So the thing that you're looking for at the beginning of any book is conflict. A story is essentially conflict and how you resolve it. So if there's no conflict, then you don't have a story. And the beginning of every story should be like a micro story. It doesn't have to be the whole plot. It doesn't even necessarily have to have anything to do with the plot of the book. It would be nice if it does. But what you really need is just a little story that introduces the reader to the character and the setting it has to be clear, it has to be concise, and it has to be interesting. It can only la- you know, it can last less than a, a page or two. You know, it could be something as simple as a person lost their pen and they're trying to find it. But that that struggle has to be entertaining. And uh, the more entertaining or the more interesting the situation, I mean, ideally you have something like, you know, uh, Officer Jane Carter didn't know whether to cut the yellow wire or the red wire, but she knew she had 10 minutes or she had 10 seconds to decide. 
I mean, that right there, that one sentence tells you almost everything you need to know for the situation. It, it, it allows you to know that the person is probably female, is either a police officer or a military person, that they're in, they have a time limit and they're about, probably going to be killed uh, if they don't do it. And, you know, that they're defusing a bomb. All these things are said in a very short sentence, which doesn't even say most of those things. That skill of being able to put concisely into the beginning of a book everything you need to know and give you a sympathy and an idea that the main character is trying to do something and what's stopping them, those are all things that you want to get in the book very early on. And that, like I said, it could have nothing to do with later on plot, but it gets you involved in that story. It gets you involved in that character. You like what you read, and then you're willing to sit back and say, okay, I, I think this is going to be a great book. I'm going to sit back and I'll wait now through the next 10 pages that may not be as exciting, but I know that this guy can do it. So I'm willing to read the rest of it. Yeah, once I saw that you had that open submissions to add that story to the to tack on to the end of the death of Dulgath, I knew that you were opening the proverbial floodgates of <laughs> of <laughs> submissions for sure. I, I I feared for you at the at the outset, uh, but it's great that you had uh, Tyler's story included. What what would you say was the kind of the, the biggest mistake that you saw people making in those submissions that uh, came across your desk? Oh, uh, they would be either vague or they would have no conflict or they would uh, have difficulty starting the story where the story starts. I mean, it, it's the same thing that all writers make uh, with every book. I mean, I, in addition to this, those things that you were talking about, the, uh, the submissions, I also have a tendency to do the first five pages. People will send me the first five pages of their stories um, and I will essentially rip them apart. It, it just makes me feel better if I ruin someone's dreams, you know, occasionally. <laughs> um, but what I'll do is I'll go through the first page. And, and it's amazing how writers will, like, do the same – a variation of the same mistakes over and over again. One is either, like I said, they don't tell you enough information. The other is that they tell you every single thing as, as an info dump. Another thing is that they spend all their time writing description and there's no dialogue or anything else. Other times, like I, I had one just last night that I was doing, in which case they had no description at all, no physical descriptions, no no visuals or smells or feeling. It was just dialogue and then a person's thoughts. It's these basic things that as a writer, you have to develop your, your set of skills, uh, which are the basics. And then after that, you get into your inter intermediate things, which is how you set up a story structure and uh, how you get people involved in the story. So generally speaking, for the most part, the biggest problem is usually that uh, they don't start the story where the story begins or they uh, don't have an even mix of dialogue, thought, and description. And uh, and then uh, lastly, and this is actually much more sophisticated, is how you make description interesting. And that is really very hard because there's a lot of traditionally published and sometimes very successful authors that I don't feel do a very good job of making their description interesting. And it, it's very hard to do. I, I still struggle with it to get what I think is right because you don't need several pages of description to get across an idea. If you can if you're really good at it, you can do it in just a handful of sentences. Back when we were helping various authors uh, with their publishing, there's this author uh, by the name of Nathan Lowell who writes fabulous uh, science fiction stories. I think he started doing fantasy now, too, although I haven't read those. But I remember he had a character who was literally just walking across a linoleum floor to go talk to someone. And there was only maybe three, four sentences in that. But the way he described that you knew exactly that place. You'd been in exactly that place before. You could see like all these other things that were kind of implied just by the smell and the the few mentions he made about linoleum floor and, and the sound of it and the look of it and so forth that, you know, you were able to paint in everything else, even though all he told you about was the floor. 
I mean, I always use it as like the kind of the rule of three is like you walk into a room, what are the first three things that hit you? And generally, or if you meet someone, what's the first three things you think of that person? And generally, it's not going to be like the color of the person's eyes. <laughs> and yet, every single writer will tell you the color of a person's eyes. And it's never <laughs> blue, brown, or green. It's, it's always azure. It's always azure or carillion or, or something yeah. ridiculous. Hazelnut. Exactly. Yeah. But, I mean, no one, I mean, I don't even know the color of my own children's eyes, I don't think, unless <laughs> the person I just met. So, but but these are things that it's, it's it seems like it should be common sense. But when you're a writer, you you start o- either overthinking things or not thinking things through enough. I think that's a possibility for a future story: is a, a character that just notices everyone's eyes, and <laughs> is constantly looking at people's eyes, and there's some kind of magical ability that's connected to staring into people's eyes. It, you know, and you could say that you know they. They draw like uh, one power from blue eyes and another power from green eyes, and so if they're in a room of people, they can digest the the colors of people's eyes to to uh, there you go. produce some sort of magic. There's a writing prompt for somebody. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michael, your stories uh, tend tend to have a, a somewhat lighter focus uh, when it comes to fantasy, in contrast to say folks like Mark Lawrence or or George R. R. Martin. So, we, let's talk about genre for just a moment. Grimdark is the main focus of our show. We are your podcast for all things Grimdark uh, and more. Um, as far as Grimdark as a genre goes, what sort of thoughts do you have on on Grimdark and the overall? Subgenres that are out there right now. Uh, well, let's see. I, I kind of feel that Gribdark has been in reaction to the more traditional old style. Uh, and I kind of see Grimdark as kind of like the extreme one side, whereas like fairy tales are the extreme other side. And once upon a time, books were always about, you know, very good people who did things for good reasons. And evil was evil because evil was evil. Um, and everyone usually, the good people always went out, no one died, and everyone lived happily ever after. And that was the extreme to one side, whereas I think Grimdark has taken it an extreme to the other side, which is like there are no heroes, and everyone begins in despair and ends in despair, which, again, I feel is, is wholly unrealistic. If you're trying to get something that seems, you know, even though it's in a fantasy world, that seems at least familiar to people. So I tend to try and write in that uh, valley between those two points. Because in my own personal life, I mean, I've never been in a place that was wholly awful and I've never been in a place that's been wholly good. Uh, people have a tendency to always have flaws uh, and you have to bring that out or they don't seem real. And places – and I try to do it. I try to think of the best books I ever loved, the ones that I stuck with me. And, and two of them that really hit me was like Lord of the Rings and like Harry Potter and Watership Down. All three of these books were things that stayed with me for a very long time. And I tried to figure out what commonality did these books have. And all of them had places that I wanted to either visit or live in. And they also had really awful places. And they all had people that I wanted to, that I really liked, that I would like to have have as friends. And that I respected and and I really enjoyed. So when I try to write, I try to mimic those things. And also, in real life, when you're in a really awful situation, inevitably, it never fails that someone will make a joke. And some of the best jokes I've ever heard were at funerals when people were really depressed. But in, in a lot of what I would consider grimdark, uh, or even you know traditional fantasy for that matter, when things get really grave, no one, everyone is so serious, which is completely unrealistic. So in an attempt to try and make writing seem real and seem believable, I, I tend to keep my characters lighthearted because, I mean, some of the best jokes are made when you are really scared or you're really upset. That's when you can really make people laugh. And my ultimate 
goal has always been to make people both laugh and cry and hopefully within just pages of each other. Uh, because that roller coaster ride of emotions is what I think really has a tendency to resonate with most people and makes those books stick, you know, years after they've read them. So we could easily talk for what two hours more. Uh, definitely, uh, we wanted to talk. Uh, marketing is definitely uh, something we talk about uh, on our show when it comes to authors getting themselves out there, and we could talk about that for hours. But we are sadly at uh, approaching the end of our conversation. But the good news is, is we're going to have a uh, Robin back on the show to talk Goodreads and uh, and author promotion uh, very soon. So that's going to be a very cool episode. So we will parking lot that conversation for a uh, soon to come future episode. But we're going to wrap up the show with a thirty second geek out here uh, with Michael J. Sullivan. And that's where we uh, run seven topics by you. You have 30 seconds to wax eloquent on each topic. And at the end of 30 seconds, we will buzz you and you will be out of time to, to, <laughs> to conclude with the subject. It's a lot of fun. And we've got seven topics here that I think you'll have uh, quite a few things to say about it. Robin, you can chime in, too, if you want to during the 30 second uh, time frame, if if you feel so inclined. Uh, well, but uh, maybe we can have um, we can offer up the topic and then they can decide which one. Once that <laughs> works, <to> tackle it. <laughs> we'll just that works. I like that. So, topic number one: thirty seconds. A geek out on Kickstarter. Oh, Kickstarter is great. It's a wonderful way for people to promote their self and and make the money that they need to to get their projects uh, made into reality. And and some of the coolest things that I got myself personally are through Kickstarters. Uh, coolest cooler, uh, Lumio. I just love buying the products there myself. Very good. Well, let's go on to topic number two: cover art. Cover art is very important when you're trying to sell something, but also so is the typography that goes over top of it. All too often, you'll have people who do really good art, but then they'll put crappy text over it. And sometimes you can just have text and it'll be fantastic. So the art is sometimes not even as important as the text treatment that goes over top of it. I agree. Very good. Next topic, editing. <laughs> 30 seconds editing editing takes a very long time uh and is very crucial to getting the book right uh was that some people say editing is just you know or writing is just editing over and over again but yeah editing is a crucial thing and is also very perplexing and an arcane art that you can no one can really understand how it works it's like magic i want a new 30 seconds so i can do my <laughs> 30 seconds on editing. okay 30 like seconds it. part two editing part two <laughs> with robin go robin so in the sullivan household when it's editing time our daughters wonder if they're going to have a divorce in the family. <laughs> and she also wonders if, if the neighbors are wondering if there's going to be a death in the family. Uh, they get very heated. Michael is always right. And I just am better off if I come to that conclusion. Here, here. <laughs> Hadrian and Royce, 30 seconds. Uh, a great duo based off of it, even though you didn't mention it, uh, ask me the background of those. Uh, in my youth, I watched I Spy and later on Bush Cassidy and Sundance Kid, oddly enough. The first one's about spies. The second one's about thieves. And they are about two men who kind of love each other and take care of each other and go beyond uh, the pale for each other's interests. So that's kind of where that was grown out of my youth. Okay, next one. Uh, Reddit, and you just want a Stabby Award. So Reddit is good. (laughs) (laughs) So I think Reddit has a very varied uh, history. Uh, There are some Reddits that are like, you don't want to be anywhere near uh, Our Fantasy is one of the best Reddits that exists on the planet. The mods there do a fabulous job. It's a very welcoming community for writers and readers. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's a better subreddit anywhere on the, the site than Our Fantasy. Very good. Okay. I agree. 
Next one, uh, the new Star Wars movie, The Force Awakens. <laughs> Better than I expected, not necessarily as good as I might have hoped. Um, I really liked it. I thought it was really well done. Um, but somehow, and maybe it's just me because I've gotten older, but it didn't seem to recapture the exact same magic that I had when I saw the very first Star Wars. Because I actually saw it on opening day. Uh, didn't even know what it was until I walked in. But I, I kind of wish that they could have had a little bit more of a focus on the main character and and, and that process going into it so I could have felt more personal. Uh, probably just me. Uh, but uh, like I said, it was much better than I ever anticipated it was going to be. Last topic, I think we can go with, with Goodreads. 30 seconds on Goodreads. <laughs> Goodreads is like the number one best place in the world to uh, – be if you're a reader or an author. It's where everyone congregates. Nowadays, you you won't find as many people probably hanging out in bookstores or libraries, but you will find them all congregating on their phones through Goodreads because they talk about books. That's where your word of mouth spreads the best. That's where people will let you know what is good to read. And if you're there, you should be there as a reader first and an author second, even if you happen to be an author. Very cool. Well, that's the 30-second geek out, uh, picking the brain of Michael J. Sullivan and Robin Sullivan as well in there. So thank you so much for waxing eloquent on those on those topics, Michael. Much appreciated. So that brings us to the conclusion of the interview. Uh, we've got The Death of Duelgath that just dropped on December 18th. The audiobook is kicking ass. You've got The First Empire coming out in June. Any other works we should kind of have our eye on for what's coming out from The Land of Sullivan? Uh, no, just basically the, uh, well, Duelgath's already out. So then, then it's just The First Empire, uh, which will be coming out. I'm expecting one book per year. Uh, I have not decided what I will do in the interim. I will be writing some things, but I have not actually gotten to that, and I probably won't decide that till this spring. Well, at least a blog post for Robin. <laughs> this, this is true. Excellent. Well, for, for people who want to find you online on social media, where can they contact you? Uh, com, which is R-I-Y-R-I-A, um, and you can pretty much find me and all information pertaining to me there. Is there any place else? Oh, Twitter. Uh, which is uh, author underscore Sullivan. Yeah, I never actually write my own name. Author underscore <laughs> Sullivan, which will get you there. And uh, is there any place else you've? Well, email michael.sullivan.dc at gmail.com. Well, yeah, you can get me on Goodreads. And uh, I can't think of. The problem is, I'm all over the place. I'm trying to think. Instagram? No, I'm not an Instagram. No. <laughs> it's one of the few places MySpace? Not that apparently or, is very or hip. Or Tumblr, for that matter. Or Tumblr. Yeah, there is a, a, a growing fandom of me on Tumblr, but is I. Is there? I've, I've looked at it, but I, I don't dare post over there because I think that they would be insulted if I invaded their space. <laughs> Places Mike hangs all the time are, are Goodreads and Reddit. Facebook and, and Twitter are very spotty. Uh, he tends to go like long periods of time where he doesn't respond at all, and then he'll do like a whole bunch of them. And Yeah, uh, Facebook isn't as focused on writing and reading, so I, I don't tend to hang out there. I, I, I will skim that area and I'll look at notifications, but generally speaking, I, I don't do a lot on Facebook or uh, Twitter a little bit more. I, I, I do hit Twitter occasionally. You're not a Facebook maven. No, I'm definitely <laughs> not a Facebook maven. But Reddit and Goodreads are a good place to rub elbows. Oh yeah, with you guys. yeah you'll catch me on those areas. Excellent. Michael, Robin, uh, thank you so much for your time today, for hanging out with me and Philip, two podcasting goofballs. And uh, we appreciate so much for you taking the time out of your writing and your schedule. And uh, thanks so much for all the work that you do within the community. It's been an honor to uh, speak with you. Best of luck with the death of Duelgath and uh, with the forthcoming series that you have. And uh, thank you again just for taking the time and hanging out on the Grim Tidings podcast. It's been a blast. And thank you for all those wonderful things you said about me at the start of the show. I <laughs> I, I like me now better. 
<laughs> That's all we care about. You like yourself better, actually. This is a self-help group. Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. Find us online at facebook.com slash the Grim Tidings Podcast or on Twitter at Grim Dark Fiction. You can download the show on iTunes or on Stitcher. And if you like the show, be sure to share it and leave a review. Until next time, stay grim, stay dark, stay true. We'll see you right here on the Grim Tidings Podcast. Podcast.